Um, how's everybody doing this morning? It's a, such a pleasure for my wife and I to be here with you guys once again. Um, last year when we came here, uh, it was our first time here, and I asked you a question, if, and I'll ask the same question this year. Uh, Pastor Jordan and his wife, uh, Rachel, were new or newer last year than they are this year, and I said, are you excited about your new pastor? And everyone said yes. Uh, so I'm, I want to ask again, are you still excited about your pastor and his wife? Okay, amen. Uh, I'm excited about them as well. Um, as Jordan said, you know, our, our friendship is something that God just ordained and just uh, blessed, blessed us both with. And um, I just feel connected to him and his wife and connected to this church. And uh, it's a real honor to even be here once a year to, to share with you guys if, if that's what God allows. Just because um, I'm so excited about, about what God's doing through uh, Pastor Jordan and through this church and this small community of Hebrew. And uh, I already see some new faces that I don't recognize. And some of you that remembered me and said hi to me, I forgot your names. Apologies. Um, but uh, this morning is, is um, going to be a little different for me than last year because uh, Pastor Jordan actually asked me to jump on board with the sermon series that you guys are in, which is in the book of Colossians. And um, it's, uh, 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 thank you, my wife knows me. Um, it's it's a, a very powerful and, and meaty passage. It's, it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2. Verse 5. And uh, I want to read that, then we're going to pray, and then um, I'm going to give a little disclaimer before I get into the message. Um, so let's, let's read God's Word together, and uh, then we'll pray and get into it. It says, beginning at verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for, the, uh, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, or some translations say strength and power, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all, of, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your, 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 uh, your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that your word is pure, that your word is true, that your word is perfect, Lord God. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that allows us imperfect people to be part of your perfect plan. And uh, thank you for your grace, Lord God, to, this morning um, to, that will be upon us to help us understand this word. I pray for uh, you to give me the, the ability, Lord God, to rightfully divide this word of truth, Lord God, as an imperfect man, as a, a flawed person, Lord God. 
Uh, be with us this morning, Lord God, and may this word not just be informational, Lord God, but may it be transformational for all who hear it, Lord God, including myself. Uh, may we walk out of this place different, Lord God, um, according to your will, according to your grace, and uh, by, the, by the power of your spirit, Lord. We ask uh, above all else, Lord, that you would be glorified in all things and that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said I was going to give a little disclaimer before we got into the word this morning, and the disclaimer is this. Uh, uh, about a week and a half ago, um, my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., and uh, my aunt died suddenly and tragically, and it, it shocked our family. We're still shocked. Um, it was very, very unexpected, and uh, she was very healthy, so there's still a lot that we're trying to wrestle through and figure out, and being in ministry, um, I was called upon to uh, help the family and plan the funeral, and I'll be preaching at the funeral next Saturday. So my normal sermon prep time, I just did not have. So what I, what I mean by that is the word, the preparation was done, but the, the, the last part of what, what I think a lot of pastors do is we condense. We make it shorter. We say, okay, what can I take out of here? I am going to be doing that on the fly this morning. So um, if it seems like a little, like, okay, I, I'm kind of making it up as I go, uh, I'm not making it up as I go, but I am condensing as I go. So I just wanted that disclaimer before we got into the Word. Is that, that okay? Is that fair? And if you guys can, keep my, keep my, my family in prayer for that situation. So um, let's just break down this text a little bit together. Uh, we're going to try to go through it verse by verse, but we may work it, work it in chunks as well. Um, but the first verse is really something that um, challenges a lot of people when they read it because it's confusing. And a lot of people don't really understand what Paul means. Even Peter said sometimes Paul's writings are challenging to understand. Um, so what I want to do with verse 24 is I want to kind of work backwards a little bit, because Paul starts off with verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't want to start off with that part, but I want to give some explanation to the, the, the second part of that, that. He says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And that needs some explanation. What does Paul mean by that, right? So why don't we start off by saying what Paul does not mean by that, okay? Because a lot of people have uh, a faulty understanding or a faulty interpretation uh, of this very verse, right? Paul is not saying that, in, that he himself is adding to the sufferings of Christ for the sins of his people in any way, or that through his suffering, he might be adding merit to his salvation. Nor was he implying that you and I can do something to add to the work of the cross, right? Uh, Christ is in glory. He ascended to the Father, which Paul even says in the third chapter of this epistle in verse 1, and because his work was finished, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, there's nothing left that's undone or incomplete in Christ's personal sufferings uh, to, to be undergone or endured by his people, all right? Christ alone is the propitiation of our sins. As we sang this morning, he alone drank the, 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 the wrath of God. He took on the fullness of that wrath. He satisfied God's wrath, uh, God's holy indignation for his people in full, right? Through his work and his suffering alone, he provided a, a, a way for us who are sinners, who are enemies of God, to be justified before our creator so that the creator alone might be both just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Christ. That is the, the, the Christian gospel. And Paul is not saying in any way that his sufferings are adding to that work. We are saved by grace alone, 
in faith alone, in Christ alone, according to what the scriptures teach alone, to the glory of God alone. And nothing we do or what anyone else does can add to that. Um, so that out of the way, what does Paul actually mean? Right? Um, I, I believe that uh, what, what Paul was saying, and, I, and not just me, but um, uh, many notable scholars throughout Christian history agree with this, that uh, because the gospel has not yet been taken to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, that, um, or, or not every person visibly seen Christ's suffering, that Paul in his own suffering was saying that he was uh, like a visible reenactment of the sufferings of Christ so that in turn people would see the love of Christ through his sufferings as well, right? Again, Christ's work is not lacking in nothing. Christ's work is complete. There's nothing left to be done except for a personal presentation of Christ himself by the church to the nations of the world, right? To the people in our neighborhoods, to the people at your workplaces, to those who have not yet called upon the name of the Lord. And God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, right? People like Paul to present the afflictions of Christ, meaning the message of the cross to the world. And in doing this, that's what it means to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is lacking is that not all of the sheep have been called home, right? And the, the, that when Paul is saying, in my sufferings, I'm filling up what is lacking, he's filling up the, the, the body. He's, he's filling up the, the, the church. He's calling the saints home, right? Um, that, that being said, don't lose sight of what a, a, a small phrase, a very important phrase in, in verse 24 that says this, right? He's, it says, in my flesh. And, and what, Paul, what, what Paul means by that is this, that his sufferings that, are, that he was experiencing were something physical, he, he's not talking about something metaphorical. He was literally experiencing actual sufferings in his body to fill up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, to bring in the sheep home. So um, you can see that there's a very, Paul makes a very close connection between his sufferings and Christ's afflictions in this verse. Um, so what does all this mean? What does all this mean um, in, in this second half of this verse? Remember, we're working backwards with this first verse. I believe that it means that... Um, that, that as we proclaim the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard, as we, as we proclaim the gospel to the world, there will be sufferings that take place, okay? That, um, that uh, through, our, through our afflictions, the, the, the afflictions of Christ will, will be made known. The gospel message will be made known. And as this happens, and this is now we're going to go back to the beginning part of the voice, we, like Paul, should rejoice in our sufferings. All right? Now, uh, that's a, a very interesting statement in 2019, to rejoice in suffering, right? Uh, because as our world grows hostile towards Christianity, and it is growing hostile towards Christianity, that's undeniable. All you have to do is mention the word Jesus, mention the word sin, use words like repent. I'm not talking about biblical words, not even you know, I'm not talking about getting in arguments on Facebook or, or the stuff that people do nowadays. I'm just saying just using basic biblical language or even step, step making it more simple. Saying I'm a Christian sometimes can, can bring in hostility towards you. And I think if we're all honest, we all know what I'm talking about. So in 2019, the idea of rejoicing and suffering is, is starting to become challenging for us in the West. It's starting to become challenging for us in America because because of this hostility. And a lot of times, rather than rejoice in suffering, the opposite happens. If we're honest, right? 
People want to be liked. So what they end up doing is they end up compromising in an unhealthy way. I'm not talking about using wisdom before you speak. I'm talking about total compromise out of a fear of some kind of persecution. And sometimes not even the physical persecution that Paul experienced. Sometimes just a little bit of anger or hostility or maybe tension at the job will compromise, right? And, 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 and that's because I believe that we've believed, believed a lie. And the lie is, is this. That if we act like Jesus, if we treat people like Jesus did, then they'll like us. That's what's going to win people to Christ. If we act Christ-like, then the world will love us. Right? Now, don't hear that the wrong way. Christ, being Christ-like, of course, is to be loving and kind. And none of us are called to be mean-spirited. Right? But we are to preach the gospel in its fullness in an uncompromised way. That is why it says in verse 25, if we go forward, that Paul says, he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for the Gentiles in Colossae to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You and I, like Paul, if we have been saved by God's grace, we're bondservants to Christ, right? And we are to make the message fully known to those who have not yet heard it, right? We need to make it known in, in its fullness, not some compromised message that is more palatable to a, a hostile generation or a culture that does not want to hear the gospel, right? This life that we're supposed to lead is setting aside any interest in social standing, political power, job status, financial income, or anything else for the sake of Christ, just like Jesus did. Jesus emptied himself of his divine glory, it says in Philippians chapter 2, and took on the, the, the form of a servant, took on the form of a man, and, and, and the likeness of a slave, came to earth and lived amongst people who were hostile towards him, but loved them anyways, right? And he told them the truth. It's very popular in, in, in our culture nowadays. People will say, Jesus hung out with sinners. And what they mean by that is Jesus hung out with sinners and affirmed their sin. But every time Jesus hung out with sinners in a loving way and was kind to them. He always said, go and sin no more. He always attached that to the truth. So we are to proclaim the message in love and in truth, right? And when we do that, we will suffer just as Jesus did. We won't be lights, okay? But my experience in the modern world and my experience talking with people is no matter how much you say this, no matter how much you point to people in Scripture or Christian history, there's always going to be some people who just simply deny that, right? There's people will always hold on to the notion that if we walk in Christ-likeness, it will be attractive to those outside of the faiths, right? And that's because they believed, believed another lie. And I'm going to tie these two lies together in just a second, right? They believed a lie that they can do something to, to cause somebody to get saved. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2, it says clearly that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is a, a working of God's power and God's spirit through the proclamation of the gospel, not by me trying to uh, behave in a certain way, although my witness is important and how we live in the world is important and we need to follow the scriptures and live the quiet life and um, honor people, right, and pray for people and, and demonstrate that love. None of those things are going to save a soul. Salvation is is by grace alone, right? It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you guys know this verse, for it is by grace that we have been saved, uh, 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 by faith, not by works, it is a gift of God, so that no one may boast, right? 
I'm not going to be able to boast in how I behaved with somebody. I'm not going to be able to boast in my Christ-likeness as somebody's means of coming to salvation. Salvation is of God. And salvation, it says, again, we are saved by grace through faith, and faith comes from hearing, it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. See, the, 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 the truth is, is people don't believe in the power of the gospel. They believe in the power of whatever they're doing. But Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power unto salvation to all who believe. The power is in the message, not the method. The power is in God's, uh, God's message that, that works powerfully as we proclaim it. That's what Paul was talking about here. Okay, Now, uh, this, this idea of Christ-likeness, some people, even after that, this, there may be even people in, this, in, in this, this room this very morning that would say, no, I still disagree with you. I still think if I'm Christ-like that people are going to be attracted to the gospel. They're going to be attracted to me. They're going to be attracted to the church. So let's just stand on this, this expression here for a little while. Christ-likeness, loving, the, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Joyfulness, faithfulness, all the things that we know. Those are parts of being Christ-likeness, right? What about the other side of Christ-likeness? Let me remind you of Isaiah 53.3, right? Talking about Christ. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. What about that part of Christ-likeness? When's the last time you were despised and rejected? When was the last time somebody didn't value you or me? because of our faith in Christ. Because that's certainly an aspect of Christ's likeness as well. And if that's not good enough for you, let's just look at Jesus' words himself in John 15, verses 18 through 20. He says this, If the world, listen to this closely, this is a very powerful passage of Scripture, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, listen closely. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let that sink in. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. This is Jesus' exact words, himself, in the flesh. I mean, it's all Jesus' words, but this is while he was here on earth. In verse 20, remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I don't know about you, but that hits me hard when I read that. I'm like, wow, you know, I'm not any better than my Savior, yet, again, when suffering comes, we don't rejoice in it. We tend to run away from it. That's human nature, partially as well. Another story to, to, um, that I want to remind you of is in, a story in Acts chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, it's when, uh, I'm going to probably mess up the pronunciation of this brother's name, Gamaliel and the apostles, right? When the apostles were about to be killed, and Gamaliel says, no, 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 don't, don't kill them, because if their message is from God, nothing's going to be able to stop it. But if it's not from God, it'll, it'll just die down, right? And after this happens, you know, in verses 40 to 42, it says this, after they, called the apostles, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged or beaten, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. So these, these apostles weren't killed. They were on the verge of being killed. They were beaten, right? Verse 41, then they went out of the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. 
Now listen to this one. This is my favorite part. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. In other words, they did not stop. Even though they were beaten, their lives were threatened, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? A lot of people will say, well, maybe that's just for Paul and the apostles. Paul kind of tears that down in, in, in his epistles to the church in Philippi. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, writing from prison, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind working side by side. Think about that. That's all the church working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. Verse 29 and 30, listen to this. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw that I had, and now hear that I have. What struggle did they see Paul have, and now see that he still has, right? Well, in Acts chapter 16, Paul was beaten with rods and then thrown in prison in in Philippi. That's what he's talking about. You saw the struggle I have. You're called to that same kind of suffering. So what's the point of all this? What's the point of all the suffering? I know I'm hanging on these, these first uh, few verses for a little while, but there's a point to it, right? right? The, the, the point of all the suffering is this, that the mystery hidden for the ages of generations, verses 26 through 29, is now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery? Clearly, the answer is revealed in verse 27, that Christ, the Messiah, would indwell not only the chosen Jewish people, but also Gentiles who made up the bulk of the church in Colossae and elsewhere. It is a mystery that's, that, that's just overflowing with blessings, right? That's why Paul says it's glorious riches or the riches of, uh, of the glory of this mystery, which, Christ in you is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the mystery. Christ is, the, is, is what's revealed to people by the, by the presentation of the gospel. Their eyes are opened, right? And they, that Christ becomes glorious. Now, a lot of times throughout Christian history, and maybe even in this church this morning, as Christians, we take this for granted. We take our salvation for granted. We, we get saved and we're excited, and then we begin living the Christian life, and then we get involved with church life. And then we forget just how glorious the riches of our salvation is. This thing that is uh, uh, veiled. Uh, people's eyes are veiled and cannot see without God's grace. And Paul is, is giving us this reminder. He's giving us this reminder of, of, of this glorious mystery. And this, you know, it's, it, this has been true throughout Christian history that we, for, we tend to forget these things. And, um, but yet for a new Christian, when somebody gets saved, this is a glorious thing, Right? And that's why Paul goes on in verses 28 and 9, he says this. He says, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, meaning God's energy or God's strength or God's power, that he powerfully works within me. Right? This brings us to a place where we need to ask if we believe the gospel in the same way Paul did. In the sense that, do we really believe that when the gospel message is proclaimed, that God's spirit is at work? No matter what. 
right? If you preach the gospel at a church and nobody gets saved, if you preach the gospel on the streets and nobody gets saved, some people will say God's not at work. That's not true. The gospel message is a message of salvation for those who hear and repent and believe, but it's also a message of condemnation for those who reject Christ. And God's Spirit's still at work. God's Spirit will either pierce a heart or harden a heart according to the sovereign will of the Lord. But we need to ask ourselves, do we believe the gospel this way? Because Paul said we proclaim him. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Right? So first things first here, and that, that is what I was just talking about, the gospel. Right? The word proclaim, it comes from a Greek word that means to make known in public with the implication of broad, uh, 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 with broad dissemination to proclaim or to announce. So this part of the verse, Paul's clearly talking about his public ministry when he says we proclaim him. And in the same way, we need to ask ourselves, do, will, are we willing to proclaim him in its fullness? Because he says, um, you know, uh, warning and, and admonishing people, and that's primarily more for the saints, that part, but there's gospel warnings and there's gospel promises. If you don't believe the gospel, we need to tell people, yes, damnation, condemnation will be upon all those who don't believe. John 3.36 says that clearly, Right? For those who don't believe, they are condemned already, it says. So condemnation is definitely a part of our message. Of course, it does not stay there because of Christ. But we need to talk about the, the warnings and the promises. The promises is, is if you believe, right, you will not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe, you will be given the, the right to be called a child of God. If you believe, you will, know, you, you, you will not taste death, but you will, you will be resurrected to newness of life. Okay? Um, but Paul's purpose for suffering as he uh, uh, was filling up the afflictions uh, of what was lacking in, in the afflictions of Christ and proclaiming this message was not only for the lost, it was also for the very people he was writing to. And he says, you know, I'm, we, uh, we're warning or admonishing people, teaching people everywhere so that they may be present or we may present everyone mature in Christ, Right? The Christian life, maturity, or some translations even say perfection, is the goal. Now, we understand that Paul's certainly not saying this side of heaven, we're going to arrive at a place of perfection. No, James chapter 3, verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, uh, able also to brittle the whole body. Right? That's so clearly, we, we understand that this side of heaven, we're going to fall short every day. We need God's grace. We need, we need God's forgiveness. Um, I realized just how much I needed God's forgiveness the moment I got married and I started living with my wife. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm really not a holy man, right? Because you see all your imperfections when you're living with somebody who's with you all the time and says, hey, that's not okay what you're doing there. So clearly, this side of heaven, um, we're not going to arrive there, right? So, but this, this warning or admonishing means to counsel uh, about avoidance of an improper course of conduct to admonish, warn, or instruct, right? Uh, and this method of perfecting the saints or maturing the saints is something that's usually done more privately. What I mean by that is it's done in-house. That's the work of the church together, right? While Paul was saying we proclaim him, that's more of a public thing. The teaching and bringing, bringing people to maturity is a, 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 um, a more of a private thing with just the church. And most likely it's done even in the context of even smaller groups or even one-on-one. -on -one. Right? In other words, 
we're not just intended to come to church and sit on some pews or seat chairs. You guys took the pews out, um, right? And, and to hear a message and go home and call it a day. We're meant to be in one another's lives. We're meant to be held, holding one another accountable, and we're meant to admonish and teach one another to, to mature in Christ so that we may, we may be presented in full maturity when Christ comes. Now, notice the qualifier, right? Um, the qualifier is, it says, with all wisdom, right? It, it, <clears throat> with all wisdom. So we're not just getting going to get, so let me give you, uh, give me give you an example here. If my wife's struggling with something, it probably wouldn't be wise for me to just say, well, here's a couple Bible verses, knock yourself out, let me know how it works out for you, right? <laughs> probably not the wisest way to minister to my wife, right? So obviously when we're, <laughs> when we're using when we're ministering and we're trying to teach and admonish people um, we're, we're, as individuals in the context of our families and the gatherings as believers, we need to be wise to the person we're speaking to. We need to use God's wisdom about their level of spirituality. If you're ministering to a child, to a child and they say, you know, they're, 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 they're wrestling with the idea that they're not a good person, children do recognize, wow, I don't listen to my mommy and my daddy, right? You're not going to be like, yeah, because the Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not even one. And you're breaking down a theological dissertation on the sinfulness of man, even though that's true and you want them to understand that. You have to deliver that with wisdom for their, for, for their age because we want people to understand. That's the goal. So a lot of times in, 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 as Christians, we, we gather together or we, we read the Bible or we study things and we feel smart, but sometimes we forget that there's a point of this is to bring the gospel message to the world, and then to raise up people to maturity. So we, we don't, it doesn't matter how many PhDs you have or how smart you are if you can't communicate these gospel truths with all wisdom. And that's a very important thing to point out here, right? And Paul says in verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy or strength or power, meaning God, that he powerfully works within me, right? Now, we are to toil for the gospel, Right, that God entrusts us with, and, to, and the people that God entrusts us with to bring them to complete maturity. This word toil in the Greek is, means to exert oneself physically, mentally, or spiritually, to work hard, to toil, to strive, or to struggle. Right? He says, for this I toil, and he says struggling. The word struggling comes from, and I'm gonna, for those of you who are Greek people, I apologize for this word here, but you'll catch on, uh, hopefully, my, my pronunciation is bad. It comes from the, the Greek word uh, agonizomai, which, right? means to fight or struggle, which we get our English word agony. And I probably butchered the pronunciation. All right? So, and Paul says, I toil and I'm struggling. I'm agonizing. Uh, uh, mentally, spiritually, I'm working hard. Right? But here's the catch. He says, I'm not doing this on my own strength. It's with his energy, with his power, with his strength, that he powerfully works within me. Right? Now, this is a big danger, not just for ministers, but in life. For us to try to do God's work or God's will on our own strength. And what happens when we do that is that leads to burnout. It leads to compromise, which we've already talked about um, a lot this morning that's running rampant in our society. I always wonder when I see that, it's like, man, how much time do these people spend in prayer? How much time do they spend in the Word? Because when you're filled with the Spirit and you're, you're in the Word of God and you're working through the strength that He powerfully works within you, compromise doesn't happen as much. Okay? And it also leads to sin. A lot of times when people do ministry on their own strength, 
that's when they fall into sin the most. I, you see it time and time again. There'll be some minister who does something amazing and then falls into sexual sin. Right? So we need to do things just like Paul. We need to toil. We need to labor. We need to struggle for those that God's entrusted us with, with the gospel that he's entrusted us with, but we need to do it in God's strength and in God's power. Okay? Moving on to chapter 2. Pace okay? Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm actually, con- like I said, I'm condensing as I go, which is really interesting. I, I, having my notes up here and uh, <laughs> doing it this way. Right? So in verses 1 and 2, Right, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul's reemphasizing the things he, he said. And he's saying, listen, this struggle was for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who have not seen me. I'm toiling in this way that their hearts may make hurts and knit together. And again, that they would come into the, the understanding of the mystery that is Christ in you, right? So the, this is kind of a re-emphasis. You can see he's now getting specific, right? He's saying, hey, listen, and, and that's important too, to let somebody know, hey, you know what? I'm giving all that I have for you as a church. I'm giving all that I have for you as my wife. I'm giving all that I have for you as my children or my coworkers or my neighbors for the sake of the gospel. I want you to know the mystery that is Christ. And only I'm going to keep proclaiming the gospel, trusting in God's power that he will open your eyes to reveal it to you. Now, um, very interesting thing in verse 3 uh, of um, chapter 2. He says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. That's a, a, a very powerful statement. In whom all are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, meaning Christ. True wisdom and true knowledge is found in Jesus. So when you think about this word wisdom, a lot of times the first thing that comes to mind isn't Jesus. It's some other thing, right? Even in our own Bible, you know, we have the book of Proverbs which a lot of times people talk about the Sol- that Solomon's wisdom, and rightfully so. Solomon was uh, the wisest of the wise, it says in the Bible. Right? But when you understand that all wisdom is found in Christ, you'll read the Proverbs through a different lens. Right? So, for example, Proverbs 9.10 says, for, uh, fear, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? In other words, I recognize God for his holiness, for who he is, and then that's the beginning of kind of seeing the wisdom of Christ, of, of, of knowing who Christ is. And it says, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. All right, so this is a, a important because of what Paul says in the next verse, too. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am, in verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The wisdom of the world is different than the wisdom of God. I don't know about you, but I, 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 whenever I engage people who, uh, and it happens more, more in public ministry, I guess, than uh, relationship style, but a lot of times people will make fun of you. They'll call you, oh, you're like a little kid who believes in Santa Claus. You guys ever heard that before? Oh, the big uh, guy with the white beard up in the sky, you're believing in that dude. They try to make you feel small. They try to make you feel unintelligent or unwise. Right? Because they don't understand that all the true wisdom 
and knowledge is hidden in Christ. So they look at you like you're a fool. They look at, look at me like I'm a fool. They laugh at us. They'll mock us, right? And they try to really tear down your faith. They try to tear down what you believe. They want you to cash in. There's even websites that atheists have, and you can find these online, where they have testimonies of kids who grew up in church and how they were delivered from religion, delivered from the foolishness of religion, delivered from the foolishness of Christianity because now they've wised up and they're not under that imprison that religion uh, puts us in. That's the way the world views it, right? This should not surprise us. And Paul's saying, listen, all the, 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 the wisdom is hidden in Christ. True knowledge and, and wisdom is hidden in Christ. And I say this to, to people may not delude you with plausible arguments or persuade you with persuasive arguments or deceive you, it says in some translations, right? We need to expect that the world's going to treat us this way. Listen to the same apostle's words to the church in Corinth about this very subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read this slowly. Just let it all sink in about the wisdom of all being hidden in Christ and how not to allow people to deceive you with, with um, persuasive arguments or to delude you with plausible arguments. He says this, and I may stop as I read this a little bit. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. The message of the cross is, a f- hey, people will say to me, so let me get this straight. You believe that a virgin who never had sex was impregnated by some spirit, and then this guy was born and never did anything wrong, walked on water, did all these miracles, and then was arrested for no reason, even though he had never done anything wrong and was beaten and crucified, died, and then rose from dead. you believe that? That sounds like something out of a, a novel or a fairy tale. Okay? The message of the cross is foolishness. And, it, and if we really think about it, if somebody else said that, it would be a foolish story. The only reason why it's not foolishness to us is because for those who, of us who are being saved, it is God's power unto salvation. Again, God's power through the gospel message. Right? Paul goes on in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Verse 20, Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Think about what Paul's saying. All these wise people with all these answers and all these ideas, where are they? God has taken the wisdom of this world and made it look foolish by a foolish message to the world. Right? Verse 21, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks, ask for, uh, the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, of which our society would be considered Gentiles. Okay? Yet, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Christ is God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom, and God's, weak, and God's weakness is stronger than any human strength. I don't know about you, but that deeply encourages me. 
deeply encourages me. I'm not worried about the way the world looks at me, and you shouldn't be either. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are wiser than the, 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 the smartest person. And in your foolishness, you're smarter than the, the, the wisest person. Right? Because it's God's wisdom. And they're going to mock and they're going to say these things, but don't let these things deceive you. Don't let these things discourage you. Don't let these tear down your faith. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. He says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. All these ideas in our world, atheism, Marxism, all these different things, these are high and lofty opinions, right, that come against Christ. Take those things and make them captive. Take them and make them obedient. Don't allow those things to stop you from maturing, from growing into that place of uh, Christ-likeness that Paul talked about earlier, right? So that's, that's a, a very powerful thing, and I, I hope that that encourages you. So how do we bring it all together this morning? How, what's the big takeaway, right? The big takeaway is this. Be ready to suffer for the gospel, number one, right? You have people in your life that I don't have in my life. This church is serving in an area that not, we're not serving in on a regular basis. And we need to uh, uh, suffer, whether that be physical or whether that be uh, uh, emotional, whether that be losing our job, whatever it may mean. I'm not saying to go out and seek those things. I'm just saying be ready when they come, okay? To, to fill up that which is lacking, meaning to bring in the sheep that need to come home, okay? All right? We need to be ready to toil, we need to be ready to toil and, and, and suffer and, and struggle for those that God's called us to and to bring them to maturity. Invest your time into those who are around you. Invest your time into one another. Teach and admonish one another in Christ. I don't know how things are going in terms of, I, I know from what I've talked to with Jordan, but get more involved. Don't just come here on Sundays. You want to be brought to maturity. That's the goal. The goal is to become like Jesus, and that happens together. That happens as we are going through life, not just going to, to one program a week. We need to be with one another, calling one another out for our sins, encouraging one another when we're discouraged, and moving forward in Christ. Right? And then again, understand that all wisdom, true wisdom, is found in Jesus. So all these different voices and the noises of the world that trying to tear down Christianity and make you feel stupid and, and try to deceive you with persuasive arguments. And yeah, people will come at you and maybe even give you things that you can't answer. Maybe they are quicker on their feet than you are. Maybe they've sat down and said, how can I tear down a Christian worldview? How can I tear down a Christian's total faith? Don't let those people deceive you. Don't let those plausible arguments delude your faith, delude the true wisdom that is found in Christ. Don't allow it to happen, right? Don't be angry and mean-spirited, right? Be 100% gentle, but 100% truthful. The temptation, as you read a passage like this, is to say amen, but then walk out the door and do nothing with it. That's the temptation, Okay? We need to understand that in our society, they need more than ever truth. They need the love of God, but the love of God is always linked to truth. Okay? Now, 
If you try to be truthful without love, that's brutality. But if you are loving without truth, that's hypocrisy. And if love is divorced from biblical truth, it's not love at all. So our society needs to see the love of Christ. And even when they despise and reject us, as they did to Jesus, even though they hate us because we are not of the world, we say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we keep telling them the loving truth, not in an angry way, which they want us to do. They want us to get angry, but a loving way. Go out and reach your neighbors, your coworkers, whatever the way it is God's called you. I hope that uh, with that little bit of a word of encouragement in this passage that you can take it and walk out the door and be transformed, not just informed. God bless you guys.